everyone, and welcome to the eighth episode of Something in the Crumb. This is Unsung Kim and Kim Lin. We're so excited to be recording our eighth episode for you all, which is the part two of our two-part alien series. <laughs> There's so many series that we're so doing. many series. We have part ones and part twos, and then we have the part two of the two part series. Um, <laughs> this is the first time that we're going to talk about a show that is not a K drama, and that is we are going to talk about the '90s or early 2000s show Roswell, not the reboot, the original. Um, because we thought that it was a really good way to transition from the My Life from a Different Star. So we can continue talking about um, essentially how much television shows revolve around questions of immigration, migration, and so forth through the alien trope, but also because we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the things that we watched while growing up, which Kim and I definitely watched Roswell. While growing up, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We maybe were like, I don't know, the 15 people that did. <laughs> I don't know if it was a particularly successful series. It did go on for three seasons, but I think was always sort of a... Struggling. Yeah, like a struggling or like a mid-level um, television show. This was, it aired around the time of um, a lot of like other big WB hits. You know that I never got into. I was like, "Why is everyone so into this Smallville?" Or like, "Oh God, oh. Smallville's not good." <laughs> you know, it's just like all these other shows that made no sense. And it was like Roswell's where it's at. But Buffy, Buffy oh, was on. yes. Was Buffy on the WB? Mm-hmm. I think Buffy when WB went like after it kind of folded into. UPN or like maybe they merged or something like that. I feel like Buffy was like one of the key series mm. that was a part of that negotiation because it was so successful. Um, one of the few uh, like reboot remake successes, I guess. Right, right. Um, but Roswell definitely was never uh, in that category, which again I think um, underlines how little we care about ratings. <laughs> yes. So the selections that we continue to talk about have nothing to do with ratings. We just talk about them based on our own internal metrics of how emotionally driven was the plot line. And the answer to that question for Roswell is, um, wow, we've grown a lot because it turns out that this series, whoa, whoa there. Yeah, we, we, Rewatched the series together in last year around this time during another moment of darkness. Another moment of darkness, <laughs> a different moment of darkness. There are so many of them, but <laughs> we did watch all of it start to finish. And um, the series, it's you know as as our memories are about this, our teenage lives and our early twenties lives. Um, you forget about a lot of these relationships. You forget about some of these like storylines. You also, you kind of vaguely remember things that um, you felt were offensive then, but you also didn't have the particular language to articulate 
why some of these things are weird. And so sometimes when you return to these shows, especially ones, well, actually, if you return to any show, really, I don't, honestly, <laughs> I don't believe that we've really come that far. But especially like, you know, the late 90s and the early 2000s for a lot of shows that were very formative to us um, at a particular time in our lives, um, when you rewatch them, you're just like troubled by things. And we mentioned this in the previous um, podcast episode, particularly about the men um, in the series. Um, but this series, you know, it did start out to be a lot more relationship driven. Um, the original like writer and producer was Jason Cadams, um, who also did Friday Night Lights and Parenthood and a lot of these kinds of like very family or like emotionally relationship driven shows. Um, because the ratings were not so great, they added on like a different writer, I think, for the second and third seasons. And it kind of pushed the storyline more into like a science fiction kind of weirder zone, um, which I'm personally not so invested in, or I didn't really feel like it was that engaging because I think what probably brought both of us to it was that it was um, about the complexity of these relationships and the emphasis kind of moved more towards uh, this sort of fantastic universe that was created about the aliens and the multiple supernatural, you know, forces that were sort of existing, um, somehow, uh, all around New Mexico, which maybe is a little bit of a hat tip to Buffy and the Hellmouth. I feel like there's a lot of things about like a particular park that seems like it's anywhere USA, but it's actually just full of terrifying things. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so you might be familiar with Roswell. Well, actually, if you're listening to this, there's no way you're familiar with Roswell. <laughs> you're an eclectic gathering of like, I don't know. We're getting more niche by the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, because they have since rebooted the show. Same name. Um, but more explicitly, uh, the, the main character, Liz, is the daughter of undocumented undocumented um, immigrants, migrants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And we thought that that the Roswell discussion was relevant to my love in that, yes, there was something about the, there's something about the kind of alien trope that lends so easily directly to parallel immigration, migration. and all of the the spectrum of the, these narratives, so much so that that in the reboot, it's not it it's actually it makes a lot of sense that they would just push it in this direction because even without without that being so explicit, it already was a racialized narrative where immigration and migration was so much about um, so much uh, like had so much to do with it, the narrative and the plot line, like the kind of you know that how do the aliens go back? Their mission is to go back. Some of them don't even remember this desire to go back. It's like a different lifetime, this urgency versus others just feel like it's their duty. And then after they do go back, they literally want to come back from the back. You know, so there's all these like back. So the the sense of belonging, the sense of um, home, kind of like where the home is, what does that mean? in this current construct. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's 
you know, there's so much about, you know, what you talk about with duty and this kind of um, push and pull between duty and destiny or something, <laughs> like, um, which occurs a lot in this series, you know, where they, um, they don't entirely know. I mean, it's, they landed in Roswell 1947, um, but they're permanently teenagers, which we can also point out too. This is a very common thing, which happens probably still now. Actually it does still happen now. I think this is confirmed when I just watched that new Mindy Kaling series. Um, <laughs> these these dudes that are in their like mid to late twenties playing teenagers, which is also hilarious, but um, I digress. <laughs> uh, but they—it's a beautiful they're... tangent, Kim. Go on all the tangents you want. <laughs> <laughs> they're so they're just like permanent teenagers, but they've been in Roswell since you know the late forties. But they don't really know anything about how they ended up there. They don't have any. Um, any other ties to to their home planet or like why they ended up where they did they also didn't grow up um i mean they grew up together obviously in the same town but two of them are brother and sister and one of them um the brother and sister kind of ended up in a more kind of uh traditional heteronormative sort of family dynamic um and they uh and they seem to have like a relatively happy childhood whereas the third alien um, kind of was in and out of foster homes and had like an abusive father and all of these things. Um, but, and I think because um, the third alien that had more of a troubled childhood uh, is, he's more inclined actually to ask questions and wants to know more about um, whatever their home was. And I think even probably refers to it more like going back home yeah. as home yeah. somehow. Whereas the two that, you know, we could make an argument to have so-called successfully um, assimilated somehow into uh, this life, into their human bodies um, <laughs> that they they treated as like, this is their home, you know? And that, like, like, why are you searching basically? Why do you even want to find information right. about where you came from? Because that's not like, we don't come from there anymore. And they've kind of, and in particular, the lead character who is, the worst and we all hate him um you know he's like very aggressive in a way about kind of breaking ties um and wanting to like start this life or focus on this life but then struggles internally with this idea about a kind of duty or responsibility and both like um a duty in terms of successfully assimilating but also a duty in terms of like a type of intergalactic promise <laughs> that his life has yeah, I mean, so the if I'm remembering right, Liz is like the human character who is like the daughter of the diner. And like that's part of the plot line is that uh, there's a drive-by shooting in New Mexico yes. in a small town. And Liz gets shot and Max, who is one of the aliens, the leader alien, we, we find out, who grew up in this heteronormative family unit saves her because the aliens do have the power of healing small bullet wounds because, you know. Only he does, though. Only he does. Yeah. And he is, like, more in control of his powers, I think, that that's kind of how it's, it's narrated. Um, and then this becomes the way, a way in which the humans, Liz and her 
two best friends find out about the aliens and then that's kind of the tension of the first season that then builds the second and the third max has a sister named isabel who is supposed to be very beautiful and tall and stuff played by katherine hagel <laughs> the only person that kind of has a career post-Roswell, which is very confusing for me. Because if I had to pick somebody who would go on, I would not have picked her. Sherry Appleby has a career. That's true. She was on, you know, but she did have a little bit of a lull there for sure. But she she did not have movies and that kind of success. That that's But that's what I'm saying. Versus like Michael, who was the alien who was essentially you know, in Canadian. <laughs> I see him sometimes just kind of guest starring on like random te- like Castle like season really? seven. Really? Yeah, like he's like kind of randomly in things. But I mean, I'm really pleased that he still is acting. That's shocking. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying is that like of all of them, I would have expected like I don't know Michael and our nemesis Max, Jason Bear. <laughs> To, to go on, but that's not what happens. So the universe is strange sometimes. Not that I think that two white dudes need more work in Hollywood. Please. That's not what I'm saying. Um, yeah, I think we're fine. Yeah, <laughs> they're fine. They're fine. But so that's like the, the, the threesome over there. And the way that part of the story is that they were sent there. They're royalty, but they don't remember that they're royalty. They're royalty, but it's confusing because it's something like Michael is actually the king on the opposing side or something. Is this true? <laughs> I don't rem- I think that might be true. And there, there is like a very like tense dynamic between the two dudes, you know, where mm-hmm. where like it's it's like a, a classic power grab kind of thing. Um, so it would make sense for sure that you know, Michael was led to believe that he's also a leader, but on like in the, the Shelbyville. Yeah, but <laughs> but so the th- but the three of them don't really, as humans, they don't really ha- have a lot of memories, except they have like weird dreams sometimes, and so that's part of the tension and the duty destiny dynamic that Kim is bringing up. That like the duty is like literally abstract, or like. Uh, it's it's abstract and then it's an abstract desire for Michael because his current life situation is so shitty that he's like, okay, I'm an alien. There has to be something better for me in the universe, you know? Um, and then, but then abstract in a, in a way in which their lived experience is like as humans in a shitty high school, in a shitty town, in like the, the nation state called the United States. So... Yeah, so, like, and that's a constant struggle that, like, the only things that they know are the things that they already know. They don't have the memories of the the, the three whatever intergalactic loyalty members. And this is brought up from time to time by them whenever the argument. And I think I would argue that Isabel, more than the others, is more set on assimilating fully. I mean, she does things like she eventually gets married um and we'll talk about later she wants to go to college you know it's like she has like plans for her life as a human and this is absurd to the other men who are just kind of like one foot in one foot out every step of the way yeah i mean i think that it's you know um it really parallels really well with um 
the immigrant experience, you know, about the kind of abstraction of duty, you know, that I think so many um, individuals feel, inherit, um, have to live with without entirely understanding how that duty is even completely fulfilled um, or achieved in any way. But it is something that like looms over and and finds itself um, present in your life, uh, sometimes in obvious and not so obvious ways, you know. Um, And I think that this is like a really great example of that where it's like sometimes they have particular dreams or particular interactions or these things that just then kind of conjure um, this sense of duty or this realization that their their lives also um, are bound to something that's a lot more than just them as individuals within this particular town and having this particular kind of experience. Um, I think the interesting thing about, you know, while we do not support Max saying, (laughs) you know, like that he, he has troubles with the fact that Isabel wants to go to college. Um, we don't really support that, but I think it's a very interesting thing to think about the two, um, approaches effectively to, you know, what is like complete assimilation, you know, which is like, I, I, I have the haircut, I have the clothes, I get married. I just want to be normal. Let me go to college. Let me just like do all the stuff. And, and then having these like, um, two men who basically are just saying it's not possible, you know, and I think that there is like a parallel there between also like a kind of like closeness to whiteness yep. versus not right. Where you're like, if I just like perform enough of it, I will pass as it, I will be white, you know? And I think that, you know, not to defend these two men, but I think there's a part of it where it's just like, but you're always going to be alien. So you need to just like recognize that too. Yeah. But then I think that there's something you're pointing out about the sort of gendered and racialized labor of assimilation Mm -hmm. that so much of it is about, so much of it happens through contesting what the, you know, gendered body can and cannot do, right? So like um, Michael and Max both have, you know, like love interests of their own who are human, but like whatever, what they desire always seems to be negotiated within the realm of what is acceptable. And for Isabel, it it always seems like she's not just deviating, she's just collapsing, right? So like her desires are, are, are very much witnessed by the two of them as just denial or collapse into the thing called human, which is like what is not them. And I do think that there's something about that that just kind of rings true to how so much of patriarchal, like nationalistic, kind of oh like God, homeward, yes. homeward bound narratives are often articulated that like the woman is the traitor, you know, like whoever she marries, like we got to talk about that. Um, wherever she goes, whatever she does, the kind of language she uses, the kinds of desires that she has, because all like essentially she must be corrected, right? Like our functionary job in life is to like follow her around and like correct her. Well, and she's a traitor either way. I know, like she, right? Like she becomes a traitor. She's a traitor to them because she wants to go to college and because she wants to like live a certain kind of life. But then she also um, later on in the series actually like betrays them, I think. Or like it's, or not that she doesn't do it personally. She has like a vision or that, basically in this like alternate 
storyline, what's supposed to happen is that she does betray. Yeah, them she betrays. And marries, him. right? Like marries the um, leader of the opposing planet, which mm-hmm. is also just like so classically American that there's just one, you know, it's just this planet versus that planet. <laughs> but it's also like, of course, everything rests on like the loyalty and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the sort of like, the obedience of the woman like god if you just didn't if you just listen to us then everything would be fine and then like halfway through you're just like no one it's not like max or michael were ever interested in her like one is like her brother and the other one is like they're just like not interested so it's like anyone that she marries anyone that she desires will always just be a site of contestation and corrective for them because like what decision can she make where she will not be considered a traitor well, and that whoever grants permission to be in that circle is just not her. Yeah. You know, like, so it's like the two of them are able to bring in these two humans and these two humans that are their love interests are like now in the inner circle and can be trusted and all yeah. of these things. But like, but she herself doesn't have the power to do that to like, and I think, is it? true that like um isn't it true isn't it, um, isn't it true? Like, <laughs> I can't remember now exactly but like her husband um Jesse yes they don't like trust him they don't initially, right like they like there's like a very deep mistrust of him and whether he's like spying on them and whatever I'm trying to I'm trying to remember if I'm getting it confused with the reboot because in the reboot Isabel's husband is also like that actually is legitimately evil (laughs) whoa I mean and I say all of this to just say like in the caricature dynamic of who is the traitor who needs to be disciplined it's like it's always it's always Mm -hmm. like like the non-white like mm-hmm. non-male, like th- that kind of position ends up being like, oh, if only you just did this differently, which is like, that's what we're hoping to point out. But secondarily, yeah, I think that there's something to be said about this sort of like, let's just try to erase who I am to be normal, to assimilate, right? Like, like all three of them having this stance of like, we just got to be normal. It's, touchy I think for me because well there's a lot of violence in that sentiment but at the same time if we are just taking it literally that like difference would it does enact a kind of violence into their lives be it like you know all the policing the FBI agents the surveillance it's like so assimilation is a way in which they are able to protect their physical safety which is also real, right? So it's kind mm-hmm. of like, yes. Which I think this brings up, um, returning to um, something that was brought up for um, for my love from the star, where just like how limited our imaginations are as humans when we come up with how we picture what these aliens are, what they look like. They're, um, you know, I think you had described it perfectly where it's like, they're human, but just kind of souped up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and also that it's like, and uh, in, in this show in particular, in many shows, I think it's like, they're just white people. They look like regular white people. And, you know, on the one hand, it's like a question like, 
it's like, well, this is like obviously a white fantasy that you're imagining aliens look just like you, um, which is like kind of crazy. Or it is like um, a kind of genius alien strategy, you know, about a recognition that, you know, for you to become undetected on this like insane planet in which all of these things exist or are repercussions of difference, as you say, you know, the best, the best form of like being a uh, discreet, the best way for you to go undetected is to be a deeply average white person. Um, oh my God. That's so beautifully put because if there, if there were people of color actors in this and Isabel ends up marrying like someone who's like a man of color and what I want to say, he's like maybe supposed to be a Latinx. I don't know. I can't remember precisely, but yeah. So other than him, it's like just a sea of whiteness for like many, many, like the whole season in terms of like the people who are important. But in this, New Mexico, let's just also it, point that yeah, out. <laughs> but this is a deeply racialized and gendered narrative. Like that's what I think like that there's something about like the alien trope that's like it's all about difference it's all all about migration it's all about like othering and i think you put down here in our notes that there's something about like the trope of like the grateful refugee that you could even see here that they're supposed to be so grateful in particular max and isabel who have these quote-unquote mm -hmm. nice heteronormative parents it's like the the duty is like doubled where it's like they're supposed to be really grateful to their parents for adopting them and then they're supposed to be like very loyal to this other universe or something um so either way like gratitude is so much a part of their existence well and that is like why it's it's always so dark um in terms of you know the grateful refugee because you sit here and you're supposed to be so grateful, so thankful that you have basic living conditions, <laughs> you know, that you, you basically just get to participate in capital, like neoliberal capitalist society, like, wow, what a gift. But at the same time, you know that as grateful as you are for those things, at any minute they will be taken away from you. And I think that that is like, it comes up on this show, you know, where it's like they are, there's a lot of like anxiety and duty and guilt, um, especially when it comes to like Max and Isabel's parents, you know, about like, and I think that they, I don't even know until it's like maybe the end that they find out about. And when the parents do find out, I think the father very much says like, just try to be normal. Like, like yeah. both of them actually react very violently. They're like, we love you, but like, can you just be normal? Like, yeah. it's like a very conditional sort of like, no, no, we love you as long as you're just one of us, which is why you're sort of like the average white person, alien, human hybrid point is so brilliant because it's like, you know, it's you taking up the fantasy of, of difference as a fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. As a fantasy with no detection and, and then surviving it versus like, actually, the thing is, is that like, dispossession does not does not actually lead to survival too often and it's it's uh it's very different it's hard to fantasize about like dispossession and difference and otherment and in the, in, the, in a way where like yeah you could i guess if everyone's just white and like it's just all about like you finding new ways to hide how you're different and then negotiating that like there's something very I guess violent about this that I, I hadn't thought oh, of yeah. before. Oh yeah, I mean it's really troubling, you know, like from um, 
as like an alien perspective from an adoptee perspective um even like we imagine if there was like a queer spin on this about just being like just be normal you know (laughs) be normal be like blend in like can you just like not because we'll like we'll love you but we just need you to like not be weird you know and that's like there's something that's like really like it's so conditional about that right where it's like we'll love you but Sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry, finish your thought. Oh, no, I think that was done. <laughs> no, I was going to say, like, it's so interesting because so much of, like, them having to not be weird or not be alien is that they have to preempt someone else's suspicion mm-hmm. that they are dangerous, right? So it's, like, the reason, if this was, like, they are just weird, like, they're a weird art kid and they, like, wear a lot of, like, black clothing and, like, I don't know, walk around the halls pretending to be a zombie or something. Like, that's very different from, like, the fact that, like, who they are and that's something that they cannot change and the little that they have just kind of running through their veins marks them as already dangerous. And so they have to preemptively prove to everyone that they're actually not a threat to the existence of everyone else, which is like, hi, We've heard this story before, actually. <laughs> I like, recognize that tree. <laughs> like, wait a minute. Back up. The premise of your entire show is that there's three people, three white people, and they have to, like, literally prove to everyone that they meet that they're not dangerous and that they will overcompensate to prove to everyone that they're not dangerous. And then, but then, you know, like, then they're stuck in this like sea of destiny duty whatever and like and then there's love so there's all (laughs) (laughs) somewhere in there there's some love or something it's hard to know the the love gets really weird and complicated there's like a baby and then like a kidnapping of the baby there's just a lot that happens um and then maybe the last thing that we'll touch on before we sort of specifically go into like a scene that we've been wanting to talk about and emotional unavailability is how um you know I think a lot of people in sci-fi who study sci-fi critically talk about how so much of like the alien you know discovery trope is also so clearly about colonization mm-hmm. um and I think that you can see that really clearly here, but but also in our everyday lives, it seems like ever more we have just the various discussions about Mars that you were bringing up in particular. Yeah. Elon Musk, he's heading out there. (laughs) And Um, what what did you say? It was like basically cheaper than it had ever been before. And that's the real reason. It's like bargain yes. marzing. Yeah. Like very recently, very recently, um, we looked up. Uh, listener Divya will remember this. <laughs> we looked up um, when Lance Bass from InSync really wanted to go to space, um, and there was like a whole campaign. He was like super into it or whatever. It was like the early two thousands, um, and. I couldn't remember if he actually made it to space. And so we looked it up. He didn't raise enough money. It was like so much money to go to space, like several millions. Oh my God. Could we start a counter campaign to not send him to space? Like, anyway. Yeah. Well, he didn't make it. No one wanted to send him there, which is like shocking. Um, And then we realized that it's also that people 
it's become more affordable to go to space now than it was before. And that kind of affordability also just like, you know, you think about what creates the pathways for a kind of colonization and you're like, ah, I see. I see what's happening here. Which is why you have all these billionaires that are just like, no problem. Just like, let's set up shop at bar. No, I mean, there's so much about the kind of, I mean, we were talking about how like, what is when you get an influx of like alien driven drama is there something that we can say about you know what what is what is real what is the famous marxist um structuralist raymond williams say about this it's like the structure of feeling it's like the unsaid thing that we're all kind of feeling um in the tension of like the subplot or like the what's not said so like if vampire narratives um, people have like theorized that like vampire narratives are often about kind of an overall feeling of wealth inequality because so much of like vampire plot lines are it's literally old wealth finding new wealth and then figuring out how they could collaborate together in the form of a romantic plot line. What do we make of the the kinds of alien driven dramas and then their endless reboots, so forth, so forth. Well, and we get we get the shows that we deserve for the time that we're in. <laughs> just let's just put that out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this one Roswell is interesting because I think of the teen dramas, I would say that it is more K drama y in terms of both how it begins so much of it is like rooted in the childhood love that max has for liz and the plot line of like innocence and then and um, destiny and destiny but then also emotional unavailability so <laughs> kim do you want to take this take this up well i mean yeah obviously obviously <laughs> obviously we just can't get enough of this stuff <laughs> um but you know this is like this is just one example um we think of many of just like these like teen boys that uh but you know it's obviously not specific to teens but just like this um type of character the man that is very overprotective um which is also like we're supposed to because we need to perform as victims be really into this as if um that kind of overprotection is incredibly attractive um, and that they're sort of like anger management issues as if that is like some sort of sign of um, love or passion um, or like expressions or extensions of like the depth of their feelings, yeah. even though it's just like, that's just like you have anger management issues. <laughs> you have like a rage problem, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, you know, we are also like they're attempting to condition us to believe that a kind of emotionally unavailable and non-communicative man is actually an indicator of their complexity and their mystery and the fact that it's just like, you know, there's just too much going on in there that they just, they can't even bring it to words. Like, it's just like, there's so much, you know, they're so deep and that's why they just kind of grunt a little. And then when they're not grunting, they're just like shoving up somebody against like a set of lockers or like, pushing up against a car or something and we're supposed to find this amazing yeah i mean and this is to say that i thought 
Max was amazing when I was a, a, t- a tween. I was like, wow, Max is the best. Like, Max is so cute. And then I rewatched it and I was like, oh my God, Max is the worst. He's a dictator. And we keep talking about him forbidding Isabel to go to college. But I, in season two or season three, basically plans are up in the air. And at this point, I'm not into Max. He seems pretty emotionally unavailable has anger management issues, kind of seems like a borderline, just, he's just like so arrogant and into himself, but secretly. So it's like unbearable because he thinks he's such a good guy. And I'm like, you're just not that good. And you're just a dude. Like you are who you are, but your, your, your confidence in your being this nice guy is just nauseating. But there's a scene where like things are up in the air Isabel's like, I'm going to go to college in San Francisco. She fills out the application. And I don't even know, like, did she get accepted or, like, she's just about to, like, submit it. Max basically freaks out at her. And he says, <laughs> like, I am going to tell our parents you have a drug problem and that's why you want to go to San Francisco. I'm going to tell all of our teachers that you cheated on all of the tests so that you're going to fail all of your classes and so you have to stay here. He basically, and I'm not even exaggerating, like I remember the scene because I remember being like, this is who I liked as a 16 year old girl. Like, did I watch this scene? Like, because after this post, this scene, like there's no going back. Like this is, he's like, Agree. this is gross and then Isabel's just like you're the worst but then she eventually just kind of you know forgives him even though he doesn't really say sorry and so after the scene I was like texting Kim being like what did we see in Max like what is it that we saw as like 15 16 year old girls watching this show because whatever I saw then I do not see now and I am thank quite, god yeah I think <laughs> Thank the fucking goddesses like Hestia and the others. Like, thank them. Because now I'm like, oh, gross. But I'm also like, what is it about this archetype of the guy who, like, doesn't say very much? Or you think he doesn't actually say very much, but in fact, he's actually mansplaining the entire show, it turns out. But you like him when you're 16. So what does that mean? What do you think? Well, I do think that this is, like, it's a real window into how dictators get made (laughs) and how their subjects get made, you know, where you're sitting there and you're watching it and you're just like, oh, like, I see how this evolves, right, where you are just like, you're like, I'm trying to keep the family together. I'm just trying to, like, I have a sense of duty. I am, like, it's if I'm, like, an upright, ethical person. And, but it's, like, we don't see at this stage, or we didn't see at this stage, that it's, like, those are, like, delusions of grandeur, that you are actually, like, power hungry. Wow. But it's, like, kind of framed as if it's, like, I care about the family. I care about pe- keeping people together. I am looking out for you. And you're like, well, this is probably how a lot of dictators start is that they believe, they believe that they are doing this for like some sort of whatever greater good. And then it like, it evolves, right? It gets like, it gets even crazier and more obscene. And I think, and then you also see like the fact that like, Isabel doesn't go to college, you know, she's just like, okay, like, and she's like really upset about it. 
but she just accepts it, you know, as like, again, like this kind of idea of like duty and that she's supposed to like, she does have a responsibility and that she is betraying her family. And there's that going back to what you were saying about loyalty, you know, and like that, that kind of construction of loyalty is also so important in the development of a dictator. (laughs) No, but, and you're right that like, if you are seduced by a dictator, you are, you know, your for what is it? Cerebral cortex. Like you're the front part of your brain is not developed enough. Like you're like too young <laughs> to get it. Like, like all of my decision-making skills were not developed enough. And that's the only thing I can say about my tween crush on Max that uh, as a, as a defense that like he was literally written for young girls to have a crush on. He's pretty. To condition us to for con- dictatorship. Yeah, to, to, to condition us for dictatorship. You said it, Kim. You're <laughs> fucking brilliant. Um, yeah, and somehow in the midst of the this dumpster fire, Kim and I found a, a, a little small tunnel. We're not I'll completely you, we out of you, it. We see you, WB. We see you. We see what's happening here. We're not fully out, but you know, we're, we're, we're getting there. There's some crumbs for us. Like someone left some crumbs for us to like make our way out of, of, of the dictatorship training camp that um, we apparently lived through. So yeah. Um, but- well, I mean, the funny thing about the dictatorship though, is that ultimately the show, there's actually a lot of parts about it that are, it, it's why it's such like a, um, a twist too is that there is this whole thing about Max just being a dictator, but there's many elements of the show that are actually really anti-authoritarian, totally, which is really weird. Um, but maybe that's actually how, again, like how some of these subjects kind of slip through or like continue to get made in the way that you are just like you don't, you just don't see it yet. You don't yeah. see it in him because it seems like he's being anti-authoritarian in these other contexts. Yeah, and I think that they are anti-authoritarian, but it's not like they produce any other structure than the structure that they are familiar with. And I do think that that's because like the, you know, it's like a show about teens working together against the FBI. Like, how cool is that, you know? (laughs) Like, there's, like, an FBI who, like, poses as, like, a biology teacher or a math teacher or something. But she's really, like, an FBI agent who kind of, like, goes crazy essentially oh, yeah, i like, forgot about her <laughs> literally girlfriend goes like mental like trying to figure yeah. this stuff out and is unable to uh and then comes back to essentially warn them about another fbi agent that will be sent so so much of it is like they have to work together against like the police state which is like always a fun storyline Mm-hmm. But then it turns out like Max is essentially like just interested in forming he another. He is the police state. Yeah, he's like he's interested in just reifying the police state. When you're just like, oh, I've been here before. I. Which is why it's perfect that in the reboot he literally is a cop. <laughs> he grows up to be a cop. Yeah. So season three basically ended with the three, the six of them, not going to college. And just yeah, they leave. like run away in a van or something. They <laughs> run away in a van, but like Liz and Max get married, and Michael and what's her name? Michael and Maria. Maria. They all basically like 
form these intimate romantic relationships with humans and then they like find a camper and they just live in this camper in the desert together it's like no, okay no one goes you're to just college. like a bunch of like 18 year olds <laughs> that are like we don't need to go to college we don't need to have jobs we're just gonna live in the desert forever with our high school lovers <laughs> yeah and then so in the reboot it's corrected that actually Liz did go to college and she became some science person. Max yeah, became she's like a cop. really brilliant apparently. Yeah, Max became a cop. Isabel married an evil person apparently. I have actually I I saw one episode of the reboot and I was like, "Oh, it's I can't bad. do this." And so I stopped. It's really bad. But Kim has watched a few. Do you want to say something about I mean, I think that they do. I think the reason why we were interested in the I mean obviously because we're obsessed with Roswell but I think because of the immigrant trope and that they really um you know about having uh Liz um and like the her family dynamic and the reboot it seemed like that was there's a lot of potential there to be a bit more political um and it is in there to some extent but the acting is really atrocious mm-hmm. um but they have they've done a better job with um non-white casting at least which i think is probably a little bit more accurate to whoever lives in new mexico which i don't believe are just a lot of these really pale people (laughs) with nice six packs you're like is that why i liked i mean i guess there's just a lot of 30 year old aliens posing as 18 year old teens actually no you're not even 30 he's from 1947 so it's like he's really old wow which we also i think brought this up i think in my love from the star where when we were talking about mansplaining it's like it's not even that he's just like older he's like hundreds of years older it's like the reason also like max is a mansplainer because he's been around since like 1947 and he's just like a really old guy trying to seduce a teen girl Yeah, and then, like, he can only really, but then it's maybe because he can only seduce teen girls because to everyone else, he's not complex. He's just, like, emotionally immature. You know, he's, like, an old person who's emotionally immature. What a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, he's basically, like, a nightmare man-child. So he's, like, oh, I've had a crush on you, Liz, since you were, like, five years old, and... You know, I will save your life and then you will fall in love with me. Like, I mean, I mean, we don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be an alien. It's like, we see you. We see you. We see you everywhere. Like, you're running this country. You're our ex-boyfriends. You're our bosses. Like, we see you. We know you. It's fine. You don't have to explain to us again who you are. We know you so well. We barely, we still don't know if we know ourselves, but my God, we definitely know you, okay? We even think you're complex sometimes. There were moments in our lives where we definitely had a crush on you. Um, most of those moments, admit it. Yeah, most of those moments have faded. So, but like, we're just, we're, we're at least confessing that they did exist in our lives and we admit it's a part of our emotional growth (laughs) it's also to let you know to never come back you know that's that's the only hope that we really have for our futures that like you just don't reappear and that we do not that's our fantasy yeah that's our fantasy that like we don't have to interact with you anymore 
I mean, we have so many memories of you. Don't worry. You will not be <laughs> it's forgotten. Fine. It's fine. We've got enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also wanted to touch on this thing that you wrote down in our notes about their New York duplicates <laughs> in season three, where it gets like way complicated and like there's so much happening. You're like... Oh so many different aliens like <laughs> all of a sudden appear in Roswell and like some are evil and some are good and yeah well this is oh god it's when they move to more of this like um, intense science fiction driven storyline it gets really complicated their universe just suddenly becomes really full of like all these different aliens it's also very similar to something like say like The Walking Dead or something where it's like you're the only good aliens. All the other aliens are bad. You know, in Walking Dead, it's like, you're the only good humans. When you encounter other humans, they're evil. So there's, like, this weird thing going on with, like, here are these, like, royal aliens. They're great. Whatever. They're supposed to be the noble ones, the true the true royalty. Um, but whoever it was that created them um, created duplicates of these four aliens, um, and they, unlike ending up in New Mexico, for some reason, these ones grew up in New York and they're basically just like street rats, you know, they all have like weird accents and you're like, people in New York don't sound like that. I don't know where you're from. It's like you're performing like, I don't, yeah, it's just like, it's a very bizarre, they look weird. They have like, you know, they're supposed to look tough, right. And they all have kind of like crazy, like sort of punk hair um they wear a lot of like leather and like you know kind of metal accessories and things to like look tough but i was thinking about how it's really interesting how like you know this was also very common in the 80s but um you know with this kind of like suburban versus urban sort of understanding but like the rural versus so-called urban trope of like good versus evil you know like they're the good ones that grew up in this like sunny desert and it's like small town or something or what they frame as kind of like a small town but then their evil duplicates are like from the big city you and, know and they're just like dangerous and they are really supposed to be dangerous because they like murder max yeah they oh murder God. their max equivalent yeah. they have different names they have different like futuristic names too like Zan. Yeah, oh no, that's literally that was literally his name. They were just like they basically did maybe what is most reasonable. They were like, oh, this guy is so bossy. So I was talking about these duties. <laughs> Telling us what to do. Let's just so they performed a coup. And, <laughs> and they got rid of him. And and like that was supposed to teach everybody a lesson that like, whoa, you gotta be good. You gotta stick together. You gotta listen to Max. And you I'm like Rewatching it, I was like, is that what you learned? Like, because I was like, wow, it's kind of interesting. They became a co-opt. <laughs> you know, like, like, finally, finally, finally someone could be like, we're a co-op, okay? <laughs> we performed a coup. <laughs> it's like sad that this is our only example of it. <laughs> I know, it's like, like literally like a five-minute sub-sub-subplot in the last season <laughs> of Roswell, like, not even, like, the final episode. It's, like, the, you know, just some random episode, like, inserted into the mix or something. I mean, it's still not even our ideal co-op. Like, totally. the search continues, you know? These, yeah. These three that, thank God they killed their 
Max, whatever his name was, if it is Zane, <laughs> Zane or Zane, yeah. Um, but they're also still kind of trashy types that just like also, it's like st- you still only achieve your co-op through murder. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's really not a co-op. It's just something. It's something else. You're right. It's getting adjacent. It's getting. It's getting around. adjacent. We're it's, getting closer. Yeah. But- how do we achieve it without murder? The search continues. <laughs> it's a really fabulous sweater. How do we achieve it without murder? The search continues. And then one day it'll just be like, we'll just murder. But still the search continues. <laughs> Dark but true. <laughs> Dark but true. So, okay, so we're kind of nearing the end-ish of our episode. So there may be two things that we should touch on. Um, One is how do we feel about 90s fashion now that we're actually (laughs) watching it come back, you know, versus everyone just telling us that the 90s are back, which is very confusing for us. And then two, do you think that we should do a second part two of our part two? Do we need another one or can we just move to... Romance is a bonus book. Um, I feel as though we've covered a lot in Roswell. I don't know if we need a second episode, but you know, if you want to go there, I'm ready to go anytime. You know, the thing is, is maybe we won't do a second episode for Roswell, but we'll eventually do a follow up with Buffy. Oh yes. Yeah, because I think like I do think that that conversation will be a continuation of the Roswell conversation especially because when I watch Buffy now when I rewatch the episodes I'm like wow everyone's so racist <laughs> like yeah. wow so much racism like why was like the black slayer there's like so much like anti-blackness and like in the in the in the show but like so much was possible in the show as well so I think like there's something about like these 90s shows that had crumbs of something though like we could talk about you know, what it means to just rewatch them now as we continue to talk about capitalism. Yeah, I do think that there's also a lot of these like 90s shows are um, middle class to upper middle class ish. And then we see in the early aughts where it becomes so much more about like really explicit wealth. Yeah. A lot of teenage shows like The OC and Gossip Girl. And these shows were, you know, like, I feel like this era of shows, it's like, people aren't working class, but they're definitely not, like, all living in mansions. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know. you're right. You're right. That's such a good point. And I, I think that you see that on a level of, like, they all have jobs at diners. Not that we think that one must have a job for, like, morality purposes, <laughs> but, like, on a level of, you know, if we... if if the option is like hearing a rich girl just endlessly talk about her non-existent problems versus having a character bitch about her work shift at a diner, I would definitely take option two, even in my fantasy. So it's true. Although as I, as you were talking, I realized that Beverly Hills 90210 sort of straddles. Oh, this line. that's, that's a good point. Between. But it is yeah. about a suburban Minnesota family. You know, Nine Inch Nails, the original, is really interesting because rewatching some of the episodes, I was like, "Wow, episode four was about like AIDS." Yeah, it was a real. 
you know, they really based it actually on um, the original Degrassi from Canada, which was very like issues based and very like each, you know, each episode really took up specific topics like that. And I think that 90210 before it became super soapy was trying to replicate that being like, we're a teen show, but you know, we're going to talk about real things. Yeah. I mean, I miss except for race. We won't talk about that. No, 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 no. That's, that's too complicated for the fantasy of television. So. Yeah. Um, and then fashion. What do you think? Posh, poshable items. <laughs> I mean, basically everything on Posh. I'm sure everything at Reformation. I'm sure is like some version of something that There's we're somebody seeing. Somebody at Reformation just like watching, rewatching Roswell, being like, "Ooh, nice top, nice top." <laughs> You know, there's a lot of cute crop tops. Um, I don't need to see 90s hair ever again. You know, oh. that short, like Maria has, you know, that terrible spiky, short, um, highlighted do that everyone hates. Liz, shockingly, for being in the 90s, like, you could transport her haircut, like, anytime, any era, but you know? <laughs> but it's so much because she plays this sort of, Mm -hmm. girl next door average white girl right like I think that that's so much of like who she's supposed to be is this like unsuspecting you know but like very lovable and innocent girl next door Mm um yeah but they're all very like they just dress like what presumably feels like very average teenage outfits and Max wears a lot of these like oversized like leather jackets that are like kind of ill-fitting, which I think was very common in that era too. It's like so unattractive. So unattractive. It's also like it's dusty in New Mexico. You're gonna wear that like black leather. <laughs> yeah, but the fashion is unremarkable. Nothing to write home about, which I guess is a review of Reformation. Though I have a few pieces from there. <laughs> you know, but it is a lot of like. Just, just like it is what it is. It does the job, I guess. You know, it, it's not like um, sometimes I watch things like from the eighties, and I'm like, whoa, that's just a lot of makeup, a lot of hair, a lot of sequins. And here you're just like, this is a collection of boring outfits. Why is yeah. the '90s back? Like that's like yeah. my reaction. I'm like, what is it about the '90s that you want back? I don't know. I know. Well, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I know, obviously, like, we were wearing a lot of things that people were also saying the same things about us. But I feel like I was never really someone that was so deep in to some of this, some of the 90s stuff, you know, like, as aggressively as some of these looks. Like, Maria's look in the pilot, it's like, whoa, you were like, it is 1999. Like, you are squarely in there. (laughs) There's the hair, the butterfly clips, like, a lot of, like, metallic makeup, you know, you're like, whoa. Okay. No, I think she has like a hairband, a headband in it, right? And I yeah. say this like with a barrette in my hair, like as we speak. So like I'm getting Headbands are back. The big puffy ones. Wow. <laughs> I threw them away not knowing that they would make a comeback. Now, now I know. Now I know. I just hold on to things and then I wait for them to make a comeback. That is officially how old I am, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I can wait, await the comeback, basically. That's my age. That's so. true. Although we do subscribe a lot to the secondary market. It's true. Strategy. So. You know, we let it go. 
And if it's meant to come back, we'll just find yeah. it again. Um, so, I mean, I've been spending a lot of time on secondary markets, being very unsuc- unsuccessfully on secondary markets. But it is, it, I do wonder, like, a lot of the things that I used to do on my free days, just like going to a thrift store, you know, picking up items like that, that, I feel like the era of that seems like, I don't know when that those are going to ever make a comeback, right? Like, how are we, especially because if COVID can live on surfaces for multiple days and blah, 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 like, yeah, what does that mean for for the future of secondary markets that are not just, like, via post? I care about the secondary markets, so. Yeah. It's the only market that we're invested in. <laughs> yeah. When the real the, the real market? No, no concern whatsoever. Like we're like, why is everyone like, let's open up the economy? I'm like, to do what? Yeah, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but the secondary market full of like secondary goods, we're like, wait a minute, what's gonna happen to that? We're really worried about you. <laughs> it's quite a metaphor into our unconscious and our existence and so forth. So, um, actually, maybe before we go, the last thing that we can say is re-watching the series, I ended up liking Michael, the orphan alien, so much more than Max. And I actually felt like more than other characters in U.S. television that I've seen, white U.S. television in particular, he actually has a kind of emotional, he's slow, I would not say he becomes emotionally competent, but he moves in a direction in which he himself decides that this whole grunting anger management landscape is not what he wants. Like he like, as he starts to develop a relationship with the human Maria, and as she explicitly tells him things like, we need to go on dates, you need to talk to me, you know, he doesn't necessarily... And it's not just that. It's like he actually seems interested in his interiority and the interiority of the people that he's around, which is remarkable, actually. And um, especially in comparison. So the second time around, I was like, wow, Michael's kind of an interesting character. How do I sleep on him? Like, <laughs> oh, Well, I think, okay, multiple things. One, that I think now we are more attuned to the fact when we watch it about how disinterested we are in singularity you know where i think that like when you originally watch it you're kind of like annoyed at michael because you're like but max is so great max is the one you're just like getting in the way all the time or like you know you don't understand him and then you watch it and you're just like oh my god like this guy is like power hungry and he's insane like obviously you're going to be annoyed at him because he's the worst but i think that like the his development his emotional development he starts to like i think he gets more interesting when they start to remove his character from only being about like as a foil for Max yeah, and being one that actually is a person that has a relationship with Maria that is like trying to develop. I think it's a little unfortunate that she has to play a role of like educating him emotionally a bit, but he does make progress in terms of uh, actually valuing her in that relationship above something like power. And above, like, you know, being the leader, whereas, like, Max is kind of just, like, deluded into it. Ugh. Annoying. (laughs) All right. Well, it makes me happy, though. It does make me happy. Sorry to bring it up again, that he's still acting. (laughs) Oh, my God. Kim, you're so excited about this. 
I will literally send you like the cat. Like sometimes I'll see him in something, and I'm like, "Hey, Michael, how's it going?" I'm like, really, I'm legitimately shocked just because it, for sure, seems like oh, I have definitely an seen would have just like gone gone back to Canada and like whatever. Well, actually, like, Ma- school teacher or something. Max definitely retired. Like the Insta- I looked him up on Instagram when we were like looking. We were rewatching the show last year, and he like married an actress who is who 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 does work i think she has like a small role on something and like his instagram tagline at least last year was something like retired after like dad of two or something and i was like okay and he starred in like some random japanese film and some random korean film and then but once in a while like i'll because i watch these like derivative you know crime shows and I'll see Michael show up as like the coroner or like the <laughs> detective for just a scene. And then I never see him again. But I'm like, oh, there's Michael. He's still doing his thing. You know, he, he can recite great. the lines. He, he, he can do it. He, you could just if you could just find a little part for him as uh, the CSI person in the next whatever, then like he'll show up and cite those lines, too. So for her (laughs) um but with that being said we are so excited about romance is a bonus book which is going to be a two-part series in the next two episodes and we're actually going to try to publish them uh publish all three of them kind of together so let us know if you have questions um we will maybe post some posh items but maybe not because, as Kim said, you can just look on Reformation and just, just go to Reformation and buy some new items. Sure, yeah. whatever. Or you know, they'll just have lots of sales because it's summer, and this is what the current virtual economy looks like—just like additional twenty percent off every other week or so, or something. So, um, but we thank you for listening to us and laughing with us as you play basketball go on walks to the park and whatever it is that you are doing cooking. And yes, we you send all of your food pics to us all the time and we really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a good day. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.